All right. So we are live with Adam Marie Atkins. Hello again, everyone. Uh, another back-to-back -back mutations episode for you, and there may be another one tomorrow, so stay tuned. But Adam Ray Atkins is a multimedia artist. He is also based in Florida. In fact, we are basically neighbors, um, which is interesting. I found that to, I did not find you in meat space. I found you online through the STOA, through your um, acid acid left uh, uh, presentation. And then I realized that you're actually a St. Pete denizen as well. So pretty cool. I'm looking forward to being able to actually hang out post pandemic at some point. Um, and yeah, you're also the uh, the co-host of the Acid Left Project, the Acid Left Podcast. Uh, you've been doing some great series of um, book discussions on Mark Fisher. And I thought, you know, We've just been in each other's on each other's radar for past couple of months. It would be good to have a conversation. Um, I'm really interested in in your work and the Acid Left's work on exploring the relationship between art and consciousness and post capitalist futures. So, figure we could just deep dive here. Uh, so, Absolutely. welcome to the show, Adam. Thank you, thank you. Um, I think it's wonderful that we live in the same city and met online. Um, yeah, it's so yeah. weird because we don't live in a big city either. It's not like New York where, you know, that's understandable. Um, sure. It's, it's something, something very unique. It only. Yeah. Yeah. Now. Yeah. Only now. I, I mean, you know, the funny thing is we may have been able to meet at like a coffee house or something if, if the, there was no pandemic, but, um, it just ended up, we ended up meeting in the best way, right. In the context of the Stoa community, uh, a number of other leftists have been on there, like uh, like the the late Michael Brooks. Um, uh, a few other folks who post through uh, through Zero Books have been through there, so they've been open to to that kind of content. And so I was pleasantly surprised to see your work, and then doubly surprised to see that you were also a, a Saint Petersburgian. So, so yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about where we can get started with this, and maybe maybe we could get started just talking a little bit about. Uh, how you got involved with the Acid Left project, how that kind of got started, and and what you see its its uh, its role is right in in helping to propagate um, creativity, meme work, art uh, uh, for a post capitalist future, right? Like, what is the role of kind of creating a media project like that? Sure, sure. Um, so the Acid Left really grew organically. Um, it started with the conversations between Mike Watson and myself. Uh, we were talking on, you know, Facebook forums and stuff like that. And we, he put out um, a re a video for a song that I had made. And then from there, we started working more and more together. We started talking with Terry Tapp, who's another author and artist. Um, and then from those live stream sessions that we were doing, we kind of birthed, the acid left and it was all kind of our um the influence that we've had around other things but also especially mark fisher's work and acid communism this call for kind of reincorporating futures that have been lost um you know ideas that we thought the world was moving forward and also getting out of a a stodgy materialism. You know, I still in many ways consider myself a materialist and uh, I believe Mike and Terry would as well. Terry's not really working that much with us anymore. He's a busy man. Um, but, you know, really embracing that other side of it, taking a lot of work from the Frankfurt School, um, who kind of brought in 
like uh, Freudian psychoanalysis and stuff like that. And then again, like Mark Fisher's work and just other broader philosophical traditions, um, getting beyond such strict Marxism, which is what I had been looking at for a couple years uh, before doing this kind of work. And mm-hmm. it's very, very multimedia, very mixed. Um, we're actually always expanding, which is really nice. Um, there's a lot of meme work being done. Uh, that's kind of related to the other projects that we're doing, but sometimes not only. Mike wrote a book for Zero called Can the Left Learn to Meme? Um, and kind of talking about internet culture and meme culture and the developments there and really wanting to push forward leftist memes. Um, and he also takes a unique approach to it, I think, compared to other people where he wants to honestly look at not just an individual meme, but the experience of the internet brow- uh, user being like, inundated with memes you know it's not the one meme itself is so important it's the constant flow of memes he likens it a little bit to uh the way walter benjamin talks about the arcades how you know you would wander around in paris uh in these arcades and you know there's all these shopping centers there's all these things going on and they're kind of assaulting the senses to a point where you get lost and you might find something new kind of breaks you away from the ordinary way that people were experiencing things before then. So thinking of memes in that way. Uh, And we're doing a lot with music. We're doing our video projects and our reading groups. The reading groups are really nice. Uh, Like you said, we're right now working through Mark Fisher. We just finished Capitalist Realism. Then we're going to do Ghost of My Life and The Weird and the Eerie. So his three major works. Um, But before that, we did The Dialectic of Enlightenment by Theodore Adorno and uh, Max Horkheimer. It's a Frankfurt School classic. And before that, we did The Communist Manifesto. Um, And what makes our reading groups unique is we're not only reading the chapters and discussing them, but we're trying to create other artworks around that. So like memes inspired by it. I've been doing a lot of paintings, um, kind of incorporating those works, turning them into abstract ideas to not only understand them more, you know, kind of work through the ideas, but also present the ideas to other people in a way that isn't just text-based. You know, think, like, I truly believe that visual visualizations there and creating, like, alternative uh, forms of knowledge can be very helpful to kind of unlock um, other aspects that are in there. You know, like, looking at an abstract artwork is going to be different than reading a dense theory text, but they both can touch on the same thing and kind of illuminate one another. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that leads into the, um, I guess, a discussion on aesthetics and how aesthetics can be um, ontological and then also pedagogical, right? It, it imparts a, uh, an experience in the participant and the viewer who's engaging with the art. It's working on their senses. It's working on their sense of consciousness, their sense of time, their sense of self, right? And maybe challenging challenging those senses as well. So I do like I do like your emphasis on the aesthetic and the artistic because, like like you, um, I find that engaging with very complex ideas and intellectual concepts in a text is one way to do this, but I think there are other ways to reach people. And maybe even synergistically reaching them with both 
is probably the best approach in the sense that like whatever you miss through the text, you might actually get through the art, right? Or with the, the aesthetic expression or the meme plex or the stream of memes, whatever you want to call it. So I really appreciate that. Um, And maybe like for, for our listeners too, I mean, I was just listening to, um, I think it's going to be coming out tomorrow, but uh, the Patreon only release of the TMBS panel. Um, this one was with uh, Joshua Con Russell and uh, Jane McAlevey talking about organizing. And what I found to be interesting is the first thing Jane suggested in terms of like, what should people do if they don't have a particular group or they want to know where to get started and helping to organize on the left. And her go-to was start a reading discussion group, like to start reading things together and talking together. So yeah, I, I mean, for me, like what really came alive in, in discovering your work um, was plugging into your book club, actually, and just starting to watch the conversations that were happening and, and feeling like I was part of a, a dialogue, even though I wasn't on the Zoom calls. I, was, I felt like I was engaging with you guys about, uh, about the work and the project. So I really appreciate that in tandem with the art, right? I think it's, I think it's fantastic. So, um, uh, yeah, maybe we can kind of lean a little bit into some of Mark Fisher's work because for the both of us, I think Fisher really, um, has had quite an impact in terms of thinking about things in this sort of aesthetic sense. And if you read Fisher, uh, you know, immediately and perhaps unlike other intellectuals on the left, he had, a good aesthetic sense. He was always engaged with art and music, uh, television narratives, the sense of time in a television show. Like, uh, you know, for those of you who've read Ghosts of My Life, it kind of begins talking about sapphire and steel and the, the freezing up of time through this science fiction BBC show or, or British uh, television show. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't, I guess my question is kind of how do we, how do we understand the role of art in not only you know, revealing a different possible world, but also helping us understand, you know, what's wrong with the current state of affairs or the current world, really kind of raising our consciousness around, um, for example, capital. Sure. Um, well, it's complex, right? Because there's a lot of different ways to look at art. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't think any of them are necessarily correct um, fully. It's because art is both a reflection of the current society, but it also is something that kind of like pushes back on society, right? Um, so in some ways you can look at art and see, try to look for the ideological implications that it carries. You can analyze, you know, a film and you can look at it in what what is it saying? Like, what is the ideological unconscious that it's portraying to the world. Um, and this is something Fisher talks about quite a bit, um, but also I think he picked it up, maybe not primarily, but also from like the works of Frederick Jameson and Slavoj Žižek, how there is ideological content there that's unbeknownst to the people creating it. So that's a good way of looking at it. But then also what we are emphasizing more also is uh, how art can break you out of ideological constraints. And that might be even more interesting, I think. Um, and I tend to favor abstraction and surrealism here. So it takes you out of the ordinary moments and allows you this way of relating to the world differently than you already were. Um, and it doesn't have to be strictly political or social work there, I think. Um, in fact, 
you know, just painting like something with a political slogan on it might be less politically relevant than creating something that's very abstract because it kind of puts you back into those narrow categories um, of things that are already defined. And what we want is art that breaks confines. We want, um, so, so in capitalist realism, one of the things Fisher talks about, which I thought was wonderful is this idea that, you know, when art is made in the commodity, like as a commodity, it's, we're producing art that's almost instantly popular for people. Uh, and, you know, the capitalist mode of production might say, well, that's because we're giving people what they want. But what people want is something novel. What people want is something strange and weird. And when you're producing something that's instantly popular because it's tied to uh, commodities and it's tied to capital and selling this stuff and, you know, trying to make sure it gets a good uh, bang for the buck, right? That you're preemptively neutering that art. You're cutting off any potentiality for it to actually open up a space. Um, so we want art to really be able to open up spaces and be weird, to be strange and to deliver new forms of thought. But it becomes increasingly harder when art is linked more and more to what is already doing well, what is already popular. And that's where you see, you know, like the way Fisher talks about culture being endlessly reproduced, how 21st century culture is just 20th, 20th century culture, but in high definition. Um, and so it's, we're really, the project is often about trying to break out of that mode and create new dystopias and new utopias. You know, um, it doesn't have to be all like, love and everything it doesn't have to only give uh, a new a picture of a better world that's great you know you could do the same thing by still being dystopian but give us a different dystopia right it doesn't have to just be the one that we can already see around us but with you know uh greater technology yeah 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 and hyper capitalism with flying cars right rather than you know Cars. But uh, yeah, no, I think that's it's interesting. And, and that's the kind of part that um, like I was rereading a little bit of uh, capitalist realism this morning. I'm catching up for the book club. So I'm like all set for ghosts of my life. Um, but yeah, I'm just rereading a little bit of it. And I, I thought of um, this an interesting situation he kind of described, I think, very accurately with capitalist realism in that there's there's this kind of arrest of the new. And even though everything's endlessly changing there's still kind of nothing that is genuinely new and in, in a kind of ontological sense, genuinely post-capitalist, even the word. And this is something that I've talked about with, with friends in, in our different communities talking about how to, you know, improve the world, transform culture, et cetera. It, it's still, the placeholder is still post-capitalist, but what is, what does it mean to be post-capitalist? It's like, it's a, it's a, it's a bookmark for the future that we can't quite imagine, right? And it's this sort of tension of not quite being able to imagine a future that's genuinely new and different that I really just really locked in with um, with Fisher about. But yeah, I, I think part of the the answer to this, though, is, as you're as you're talking about, is that a lot of this has to do with sort of reclaiming uh, the subjectivity of 
let's say consciousness experiences, um, psychedelic states. And here, here I am kind of positioning us for a discussion on the acid left and why, why acid left and what does the consciousness dimension have to do with really kind of breaking into the new? Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so acid means a lot of different things, or at least this is the way I'm reading Fisher. It does, of course, refer to acid as in like LSD, um, kind of reclaiming the uh, the futures that the hippies kind of hinted towards, but never realized, you know, this is something we have to remember is that the hippies grew up to be like the CEO of Whole Foods and, you know, Silicon Valley um, tech giants and stuff. In many ways, this desire to unleash the libidinal energies that they wanted brought about just a smarter capitalism um, that's still causing many problems. The problems might be a little bit different now, but they're, you know, it's not the utopia that the hippies quite imagined at all. Um, and not to get too much into that, but you can see that in other realms too, like um, sexual liberation uh, coming to new form, new codes of conduct that also stifle in a way that don't feel quite authentic. Um, so there is that aspect of acid. Um, and there's also the aspect of like corrosion of deterritorialization, um, you know, kind of taking back this uh, uh, subversive element that was there because subversive elements get re-territorialized by capital. Um, you know, what was a protest movement very quickly becomes just another way to celebrate the market. Um, and you can look at this with like LGBTQ stuff, you know, in the 70s and 80s. These rallies are highly uh, critical. They read philosophy, they read theory, they explore new ways of life. And then by the mid 2000s or even earlier, you know, they're sponsored by large companies and become almost like a brand identity rather than a truly subversive identity. And you see that with all sorts of stuff. Um, you know, Fisher talks a lot about with music, with Kurt Cobain, with hip hop. Um, these taking these subversive elements like punk rock uh, and street culture and kind of selling them back to the public, but with all of their radicality removed. So you want to we want to re-embrace that and take those um, steps even further. And that's where consciousness comes in. You know, like I think there's a lot of good work about consciousness raising about, you know, different forms of knowledge about bodily knowledge about um spirituality and rituals uh from old to new yet the most popular form of spirituality um is something like mindfulness which kind of just teaches you to reinforce the larger systems to fix yourself to perform for capital you know you went from meditation being used and meditation is great i'm not trying to knock these things you know um but recognize the way that they are misused or you know kind of don't reach their full potential you know meditation went from this way of like really contemplating uh you know yourself as part of the whole as part of the void and in larger pictures to meditation being practiced by CEOs and corporate boardrooms is a way to get through the day and not have so much corporate stress rather than those people questioning maybe, well, why 
am I living a life that causes so much stress? Why do we kill ourselves? Why do we kill our mind and spirit for capital rather than kind of working a way that is, you know, that, that, that creates more than that, that feeds more than just the machine um, that's always out there. So, yeah, so those are the two main elements of acid there in acid left or acid communism. Um, and the psychedelic, I think, doesn't just have to be that old psychedelic movement too. You know, now we've experienced like digital psychedelia, um, which is something even uh, some of the psychedelic um, gurus already were talking about in the early 90s. Like Timothy Leary, you know, People either hate him or love him. Um, but regardless of that, you know, he did go from talking about LSD to talking about the Internet. Um, you know, he was an early adapter of saying, hey, the Internet's going to change our consciousness. He thought it was for the very good. And I think it could be. But now we've seen how it can uh, change our consciousness to the very bad, um, you know, with filter bubbles with um, that we're all kind of being our ideas are being reinforced to ourselves. We're not being challenged uh, and with algorithms that lead us down rabbit holes. And we're seeing this play out in the world right now as, you know, it comes fully back into itself where rabbit holes have led people with mild conservative leanings or mild spiritual leanings into, you know, deeper and deeper confirmation of far-right occult spiritual practices um, with like QAnon and other, you know, uh, conspiracy theories such as that. Um, and, and also our, the way we process time in the neutral way. Um, I think it's negative, but it's not as negative outright as something like the, uh, uh, your ideas being funneled into further and further extremes, um, you know. So, we live in a, in a way like moments, the present is shorter and shorter. And that's because of internet technology. It's because of the way that we process information constantly. You know, people a hundred years ago might've thought of the present as, you know, decades long, you know, the now lasts for quite a while. Whereas today now lasts a couple days at the very most, um, you know, you're, and that's, that's even actually being optimistic, I think. You know, sometimes it's like what happens in the morning by the end of the evening seems like old news and you can't even think about it and put it into a context where you really mean something, where you're able to situate yourself in the larger time frame, which helps situating yourself in a community. So as we become more and more individualized uh, through inter interaction, we are... Um, our, our, our present is becoming shorter and shorter. So it's, it's not good on either end there. No, no. And, and th this is like um, a very interesting way to dovetail into a few other discussions that are going to be happening at mutations. Like um, we're going to be having Andrew McLuhan on, who's the, the grandson of Marshall McLuhan um, at some point in, in January, maybe early February. Um, but yeah, the, the, the kind of intensification that, a particular medium like the internet has as a psychoactive technology is deeply underappreciated. Whenever we unleash a new communication medium, 
and basically inhabit it, it as an environment, we're doing something really radical and drastic and potentially dramatic in terms of changing culture and, and the unforeseen repercussions like we've just been discussing in terms of media bubbles and QAnon and uh, uh, what do you call it? Um, the whole kind of post-truth world that the, the Trump era was really kind of initiating, but you know, it wasn't really Trump. It's like in the context of this new mediated environment, somebody like Trump, you know, the, the Twitter president could succeed so well. So yeah, I think an awareness of that is important. And this is something that Mark Fisher talks quite a bit about as well, just in terms of temporics and the present. And actually I was just reading this morning, morning through uh, the capitalist realism book. He's discussing Jameson's um, uh, articulation of time, right? That the, the kind of, the, the one of the most important takeaways we might get from his discussion on the postmodern condition isn't so much about the pastiche, but really the sense of time that that it, that we are now inhabiting is exactly as you describe these short, disconnected presence presences or nows, these flat nows that are constantly mutable. And as soon as tomorrow happens, the new things are going on. Yesterday's events with a capital E are completely forgotten, right? And we go through this, as you're saying, in a single day sometimes with the with the news that is happening. So yeah, I, I think having a consciousness of this time seems to be really important and potentially liberatory just in terms of, or liberational in terms of, well, can there be a new time? Can there be a new way to inhabit time? And that's sort of what I've really been interested in, in exploring with you. Yeah, um, and that's the hard thing to imagine. Um, is can there be a new way of inhabiting time? Um, because it seems like it's becoming harder and harder. You're like, we're, we, I feel like we get caught up in uh, these experiences of time, even when we're aware of them. You know, it's hard to actually break out of them. Um, like, I mean, at a very s simplistic instance, we're always talking about this on the very mediums that are causing this, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so it's like a little bit of a fight back, but even the discussions become uh, part of that. And it's a really hard thing to fight. Uh, something I wanna stress though, and is that it really is related to the very social structures, right? This is not just like, oh, people are thinking differently now. It's the relation of how society is organized the way information is sent and processed and the way people interact that actually creates this like variations of consciousness. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think, I think uh, there, there's like a, some critique of Fisher that it is kind of like this idealistic thing, like, Oh, people just changed their minds, just changed how they see the world. But this isn't so, um, you know, it really is related to the very social relations that govern uh, individuals. So what are different ways that we could inhabit time? Um, Fisher speaks a little bit of the psychedelic in the psychedelic spaces and the way that they slow down time um, and bring you almost to a non-time. Um, now, he means this, obviously, he was not a big drug user um, at all. And mm -hmm. so he is careful to talk about how like the psychedelic could be a media experience, how the, the world experiencing um, uh, reports of 
the war going on through mass broadcasting for the first time was a psychedelic experience for them. You know, that shifted public consciousness um, and individual consciousness drastically compared to the way that they would experience the war through newsprint. Um, And then before that, of course, just by word, when soldiers come home or, you know, when that gets back, we're immersed in it now. It's constantly there. And with today with live streams and stuff, you know, we can't even wait to hear about it on the the Monday night news. We're watching it as it's happening. And then our commentary is based as it's happening. You know, people are already, uh, and I, I feel myself doing this too. As soon as I'm watching something, I got to say, I have to comment on it. I have to put the philosophical spin on it rather than allowing it to ruminate a little bit and really being able to take it in and um, see what you think about it later, which is, you know, not good because Hegel tells us the the owl of Minerva, um, you know, p- flaps its wings at dusk. It's already, it's only when things are ending um, <laughs> that we can really look back at them and give a true uh, picture of them. Um, I got a little bit lost there. Time, hmm. psychedelic. Time. Yeah, uh, a new a new consciousness of time, and and I think you were emphasizing. The, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but there's other ways to 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 play with time and experience too. Because you're right. In some ways, being liberated from you know vast historical stretches can be good for the consciousness. Like it, it's freeing in a little bit. You don't have to worry about these larger things that are going on. But the problem comes a little bit, too, from the fact that things are going on. And if you're not engaged in them, then they go on without you. And, you know, they're going to go on in any way, but you have the ability to affect the way things develop. And if you can't situate yourself within larger frameworks, then you get kind of swept up in what's like in those that can't, that have the ability um to afford that kind of stuff, which may be people like, uh, you know, Elon Musk or uh, Jack Dorsey from Twitter, you know, they have the ability and somewhat more to afford to be able to picture larger timescales because they're not swept up in that. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. And, and to some degree, I think, um, you know, this goes into a discussion like um, uh, Byung-Chul Han has a really good book called The Scent of Time. And the really the thesis of the book I, I thought was very Fisherian, I don't know, uh, Mark Fisherian, I don't know if that's a good descriptor for, for Fisher's work, but um, in the sense that he he talks about this distinction between via activa uh, and via contemplativa, and he says, you know, the labor and action in a culture that's one-sidedly emphasizing just getting things produced at a faster rate or a higher rate or, you know, more monetarily uh, uh, accrued rate or whatever you want to call it, just the capitalist logic, right? Um, not being able to slow down or to go into reversals or to go into sort of the sort of sidestep that linear directive process is soul destroying, right? It, it actually eliminates the capacity for the new. It becomes a kind of a like a rote mechanistic kind of repetition, right? So yeah, you just actually, repeat and repeat. Yeah, we need to. We need more next quarter. We need more next quarter. So everything is just collapses on that sort of as a singularity. So. He suggests, you know, the response to that could be 
or you know is is necessarily so this via contemplativa which is um not exactly saying like a life of of aristocratic leisure but the capacity to slow down and actually engage in more human centric and common centric kind of dialogues growing things you know um yeah. taking a break from the nine to five like that kind of lifestyle and a culture that could produce that sort of lifestyle rather than this sort of relentless march forward um into progress so i don't i don't know exactly what, what i'm asking in this in this instance except that you know maybe how how can we see the role of um consciousness raising uh working with art psychedelics and in, in the definitions that you've provided as as an aid to assisting us in producing this new sense of time well so art uh is a little bit easy one to comment there because for most people what is the value of art precisely nothing you know i mean of course like rich people use it as financial investments and stuff but it's not useful in the um, or valuable in this traditional capitalist sense. It's a painting. It's, you know, a song that someone sings. It has mm -hmm. no intrinsic value. So to actually put value into that, to say no, uh, creativity itself is an important aspect of human life and an essential aspect of human life um, kind of goes against this idea that we are supposed to just be producing more and more. We, we've gotten stuck, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking of the phrase, always be hustling, um, you know, <laughs> and this idea that you're every second that you're not doing something else, you should be doing other things. You should have a side gig. You can't have a hobby. It has to be um, monetized. You know, these types of thoughts just leave people burnt out. So emphasizing that, you know what? No, the society that we want you work less, um, you know, the society that we want, you're able to not do shit sometimes. That's mm -hmm. important because people feel like, you know, they internalize uh, these commands and they feel guilty if they take a day where they sit down and sit at home um, and, you know, hang out with their, their pets or watch TV, you know, um, and as commodified as it can be, like, self-care is very important you know and if you don't have that and if you're not looking for more of it uh then you will be burnt out in one regard or the other uh psychedelics i think you know in like the more drug sense uh actually physically help with this too um you know there's been lots of research that shows this uh the way that it can help repair neural damage brought on by traumas that we face in our life um brought on by the stress of constantly working and trying to manage our time in some kind of way and then also by just bringing us out you know if if you were one to take psychedelic drugs, if you're in like an area where it's legal or you want to break the law, you know, you experience uh, what classic psychedelia would call ego death, where you stop distinguishing the self from the from the world. And through that, you know, it's not like you are able to fully process things in that moment. But even afterwards, there's a lasting sensation and like a, an impression of that experience. And while you're under that, like, you know, those seven, eight, 
12 hours, you're on LSD, you do not think of the world in the same way. You do not relate to yourself or to the larger systems in the same way. Um, and while that's happening, your neural structures are being built and rebuilt. You're making new connections and those have lasting effects on the brain. So they literally do help, you know, and that's why they're being used for PTSD, for mm -hmm. trauma, for um, anxiety, stress, depression. There's all sorts of methods there that are being um, worked and experimented on. Uh, and so that was art and psychedel psychedelia. Was there another thing? I mean, that's really, you know, a, a good point. I, I think like the, the, the subtext that I'm hearing too is, is not just like I, sh I saw the acid left share that meme about, um, you know, um, maybe we can share Marxism and, and leftist analysis, but we'll do it with cool vibes or we'll do it with some aesthetics that make it a little trippy. And like, maybe that'll people will receive it better, almost like the sugar that makes the medicine go down. Although yeah. like as much as we joke about that, I do think um, your point here is that no, actually um, it, it, it is more valuable than that. It is actually an invaluable or unqualitative dimension that goes along with like being a full human being and that we should value that. Right. And that it, it doesn't, it doesn't have a quantifier in that sense, or at least I think it, that's it true. It. Mm -hmm. I do think that's yeah. true. Um, but to, to comment on the, the sugar that makes the medicine go down, you know, a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Um, I do think that's an important quality too. Like this sure. stuff should be fun. Um, you want to win over the working class, you want to win over ordinary people, um, then telling them the GDP of India or describing to them child slave labor conditions, not that neither of those are unimportant, but that's not going to win over the average person. Um, you know, mm -hmm. they want to, you're, like, especially as an introduction, you know, if you're like, you think of um, like U.S. Trotskyist or Maoist groups waving newspapers around and stuff like that, that are this, these dry, boring things that like no one wants to read that. No, no one's going to be walking down the street, grab them, go, oh, wow, the world could be better. Um, very, very little people. You know, I mm -hmm. think of things that have gotten me into this. I am not an academic, I did not go to college. Um, and I'm reading philosophy and critical theory and all this stuff, you know, and a lot of it has to do with like music and culture that set me onto this path. You know, um, I think one of the most important things that's ever happened in my life was in fourth grade, my soccer coach wore a Rage Against the Machine shirt. And that, <laughs> that, that title, Rage Against the Machine, I was like, huh. That sounds really cool. And I went yeah. and I found, you know, like a year later, found a CD by them and was blown away. Um, now, of course, like just listening to like some punk music or something isn't going to give you all the understanding in the world. But you need something that people can have fun with. They want to release their libidinal energies. There has to be this component to it. And today... Um, or over the last few years, I think you've seen the right embrace that. You know, that's why you have like the the adage that the left can't meme even exists because the right wing tried to take subversiveness as its own, you know, saying that like, well, no, we're the subversive ones. We're having the fun. We're allowing you to get out your excess energies that society represses. Now, of course, they do that in terrible ways by saying, well, 
you know, with us, you're able to joke and be misogynistic and, you know, be racist or whatever. Um, we want to find ways for the left to channel those energies, um, to rechannel them um, so mm -hmm. that you can have fun without, uh, you know, turning to these modes of self and societal destruction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, yeah, I think that's a, it's a very important point. And it, it's something I think it's a project that left is still working on at the moment in terms of, um, I mean, we have seen like in the past five years, it's the whole landscape has changed from, you know, really during the Trump era, we've had a series of protests it culminating last year and in, in the uh, Black Lives Matter, right, and clashes with the uh, with the new right. Um, and so there's been a big discussion, and particularly in online circles, about um, PC culture and the kind of neoliberal wokeness and responses to that, while maintaining a sense of you know, you know, being aligned on the left with a sense of justice as well, right? And so how do we navigate that very tricky space? And I think you're right that like that sort of trickster energy or aesthetic of playfully working with things is probably a good throughway. Um, and, you know, I think my, my question was, you know, how, or maybe we were kind of exploring how, you know, art is essential and then also the medicine going down appropriately is, is, is essential. It, it maybe reframing that too, though, right? As a sense of like, it's not just sugar making the medicine go down. It's the other part of the medicine, right? Like the sweetness is actually a part of the medicine. The, the, the taste, the flavor, the richness of experience is part of the medicine, right? Like that's yeah. the kind of society that we want to create. One that is not pinned down by just mere extractive quantitative forces and quantitative analysis as a response to it, but revivifying the singularity of, you know, a single experience, right. Or a cosmic experience or a communal one, right. We want to bring those back. And I think you're right that, you know, unfortunately the, in our time, the right seems to have co-opted very deficient expressions of that that are still filling people's needs. Right. I think Michael Brooks talked quite a bit about this, um, in terms of, you know, well, okay, we can make fun of Jordan Peterson, we can critique him, we can, we can debunk his arguments, but what is the kind of mytho-emotional, aesthetic, spiritual appeal that he seems to be drawing people in with, right? There's a, there's a desire and a hunger for meaningful dialogue, spiritual experience, right? Um, a, a sense of purpose and individuality. Like, yeah, living in capitalist realism strips us of those things. So... Yeah. You know, I, I think we have to be able to respond creatively and artistically to the to this crisis and not just think of it as just medicine. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because those things are part of humanity. Like those things are part of what it means to be a human, um, at least as far as we've existed so far. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we know this, that capitalism, it destroys these things. It destroys traditional hierarchies, some for the good. Um, but there has to be something new there. Otherwise mm -hmm. it like the desire for it goes back into reactive modes. And, you know, you want to bring back past modes um, that could be harmful for a lot of different people. Uh, mm -hmm. So yeah, I think, yeah, we have to, we have to sweeten the medicine, but it should be with like Manuka honey and not white sugar. Yeah. 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 No high, yeah. high fru fructose corn syrup for us. Right. Um, right. Right. There has, yeah, there's uh, a, there's a meditative, um, or a meditative, uh, medicinal uh, element to the sweetness. That's I, I, I yeah. really like that idea.
Yeah, and I think there's like another element here too with with um like you mentioned mindfulness and that kind of I mean there's so much discussion and 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 analysis of make mindfulness and, yeah. and and seeing as another apparatus of of neoliberalism and Zizek has talked quite a bit about that with the kind of the new Protestant work ethic being make mindfulness and and so on. But you know, I think this is also the importance um of having a good kind of whole I'm gonna use a new agent word, holistic container for things like spirituality or spiritual practice. If we have in that sort of a, a book club reading and a kind of material analysis of history and recognizing some of these um, you know, material conditions that we're in, in addition to working on the spiritual, I think the container is important, right? The, the environment that we practice these things in is important. If it's in like, um, I don't know, like a nine to five office environment where they want you to optimize your work performance by like removing your stress levels or lowering your stress level. That's a very different container to learn mindfulness than, hey, like I am an a activist and a labor organizer and contemplative practice is deeply important for me to have some form of equanimity and not get into oppositional, you know, uh, debates, uh, something along those lines. It's a very different container, right? Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. Um, you know, I, I first came about mindfulness. My um, uncle is a uh, – um, oh, I've lost – I'm losing the word. In the Catholic Church. Um, uh, mm, the people at that, I, that, that, that preach is a very simple word. Um, well, he started off as a friar. Let's I'll say that um, he was a friar, a Franciscan friar, and he had to study all sorts of world religions. And I remember in high school, he gave me a book by Thich Nhat Hanh, um, a Buddhist thinker. And it was one about mindfulness and reading it there. And it made a lot of sense to me. And I, you know, tried to incorporate some of that stuff into my life about breathing practices, about being aware of stuff. Um but yeah, that mindfulness is much different than this corporate mindfulness. It's both used for different aims. Um, and, you know, it's, I can't imagine being at my office and becoming aware of each breath and thinking about each key that I stroke as meaningful, in, you know, in, in the larger yeah. picture. I mean, maybe, maybe I should be, but that just seems empty rather than thinking about, feeling my foot hit the ground and like um, imagining the uh, the way the grass is compressed against my shoe and the, the ladybugs that might be under there and the ecosystems that are even supporting the ability for me to be able to walk. You know, it's just, it's just so different. And mm -hmm. one of them is very useful and one of them feels like a perversion of that. Yeah, but yeah. it's important not to write off that because we see it corrupted um and that is a mistake that a lot of the left makes is writing that off and you know that's what you're saying about michael brooks observation on peterson is like people have this desire for meaning they want it so if you just write it off they're going to find that somewhere else um mm -hmm. you have to make sure the only people that are talking about meaning aren't um you know on a side that you think is providing the wrong answers Exactly, exactly. And I think this is really kind of making the point that, um, you know, Michael is making towards the in, in the summer, actually, at one of our last conversations, he was talking about, um, you know, the need for for the left to become more regenerative, right, and to, to begin to incorporate these things. Um, 
and he called them in in the call. He, he called them uh, or described them as exit strategies. Like we need genuine exit strategies, that places people can go that are positive and constructive and regenerative, right? And so I think is it's sort of an unfinished task. But I kind of I see what you're doing at the acid uh, acid left project as really part of this sort of regenerative turn of the left, in which is let's look at those things that we would maybe you know automatically critique and reject and deconstruct and say okay well spirituality is co-opted by uh QAnon or it's co-opted by neoliberalism so let's just avoid it and stick to the material analysis it's a both end kind of approach right which leads yeah. into kind of the discussion of like well we need to be more integrative um, whether or not you follow integral theory or whether or not you're looking at metamodernism, more, a more integrative and holistic approach that really tries to hold these things together and point out not only do they belong together at a theoretical level, it makes you a more effective activist and makes you do your work more effectively by actually addressing what's missing. Um, so let's 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 shift over. This is some uh, in the last 10, 15 minutes. Uh, we have a couple of good questions in in a the YouTube stream. Let me just try to find oh, one. Cool. From. Yeah, yeah, we got some live listeners right now. Just one comment from Armando just saying, um, <laughs> yeah, it's true. Progressives are so straight, laced, and uptight, and preppy, except Jim Door. <laughs> <laughs> He's an uh, aggressive progressive. progressive. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's yeah. true. Um, that yeah. is true. <laughs> That is true. We don't have to go in depth in, in depth analysis. I just got to chuckle out of that. But no, um, that's funny. I'll, I'll yeah. go ahead and say I am not a big fan of Jimmy Dore. He irritates me quite a bit. Though I used to think that uh, I used to like him quite a bit when he was originally on TYT um, during like uh, I guess Bernie's original run. Um, yeah, but you know he had wasn't yeah less less to say back then too. So I don't know. Yeah, I couldn't yeah. get into a substantive thing about that. No, no, and you know, I think part of the the Jimmy Dore phenomenon is also um, like another discussion that would require us to really unpack, like uh, talking about, let's say, like Amber Frost's essay uh, from Catalyst about the the poison chalice chalice of hashtag activism, and again, it's about this mediated environment of like hyper-polarized media political pundit spaces, right? Where you really have to be very oppositional and outlandish in order to really kind of get the views. So there's a lot of like market pressures yeah. to be very divisive, you know, just in terms of like the yeah, problem you know, on the left, right? To, to speak on that, you know, making memes and stuff, um, the memes that do the best are ones that irritate people. Um, and, you know, and that's something that is a problem, right? Because yeah. uh, if I want, I, you know, I'm making stuff, I want it to go far, I want it to be seen by a lot of people. And I'm shown that if I can make someone mad, I'm more likely to get seen by more people, both good and negative. You know, the, the someone getting mad and writing a tirade against your meme is makes it more likely for people to engage them. And it makes it more likely for other people to see it and, you know, mm -hmm. defend you and go back and forth. So it creates a tribalism. And it, you know, it makes me want to make memes with Belle Delphine in it, because I know it's going <laughs> to piss someone off. Um, you know, whether or not I agree with it, or not, you know, or if I'm just using it cynically to, you know, get those views, it, it still works. Um, yeah. 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 It's not good. 
So let's let's jump to uh, let's jump to another of Armando's questions. But uh, this was a little bit more of a substantial inquiry. Uh, defamiliarizing aesthetic techniques that destabilize conventional perception are akin to psychedelic experience. So, how is the legacy of artistic modernism relevant to acid communism? <laughs> um, Interesting. I mean, I'm tempted to say, Armando, you answered it right there um that that it that it is um you're right they're connected uh they are similar they bring you out of like you know what you've already expected and allow for the possibility of a new even unconsciously to exist um and that's the experience of looking at something that's like a surreal artwork um that's look looking at you know abstract expressionism or something like that uh or even like glitch art today um i think has a lot of that there um so it's i think it's very relative i think uh you know we need a new avant-garde today and but the problem with that as we like talked about in the very beginning is that that is harder and harder to accomplish um you know you have to think these people the modernists were often getting government grants to work on projects. And mm-hmm. so they didn't have to worry about creating something that they knew would instantly sell. Um, you know, so they were able to live while painting or sculpting or working on land art that's not commodifiable at all um, and still feed themselves while working on this stuff. But if you're making your stuff for, a commercial TV program or for a commercial gallery that decides whether you can continue to do that based solely on um, if, you know, they can sell your work, you're less likely to create something that challenges that you, the aesthetics become more and more conventional. So we need, you know, in some senses to figure out a way where you can actually encourage artistic, uh, riskiness artistic creativity and um for people to be able to break out of the aesthetic norms without worrying about feeding themselves because i mean most of the people that do this kind of stuff are not living off of it you know they're they have to do this as a side um they can't actually support themselves on it. And that makes it harder and harder to do to the point where a lot of people give up on any kind of artistic creation or expression by the time they hit 30. You know, how many people do you know who were musicians in their 20s and then in their 30s haven't touched their guitar? Um, mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, no, that's a good, uh, good response. I mean, I would just say, like, in terms of artistic modernism, um, really depends you know this is something this is kind of another another discussion another rabbit hole to go down at some point but i know that you know a lot of gepser gene gepser who is another integral philosopher i talk about quite a bit and he talks quite a bit about time um but one of his interests in studying was mainly artistic modernism to talk about okay there's a new relationship to time they're they're even exploring the theme of time and very interesting interpretations of that um and i would say yeah I, i i think your point about not really having the funding or the resources, we're in a different context. We don't really have the freedom to explore that. Um, Ironically, in the information age where there's a proliferation of media and the creation of media, we have less space and less time to actually 
explore and innovate with the new, the genuine new. So that's the kind of um, catch-22 I, I think we're in. And rather than the new showing up maybe as uh, singular individuals or funded art projects that are, you know, um, socialized to some degree, um, we are instead kind of seeing the new crop up um, it, it, well, I guess like what you're talking about with like glitch art and that kind of thing. I, I know there's a, a good book. I forgot the author's name at the moment. Babbling Corpse was your books kind of exploring. Oh, yeah. Uh, Grafton and, Tanner. Yes. Yeah. So it, it does seem to continue to show up, but as a sort of like digital folk pop art, right? It's a, it's a, it's a right. motif rather than a particular movement necessarily. And I think that's, it's an interesting phenomenon. Um, yeah. And there's certainly, it's saying interesting things and that's a very fascinating book. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't think we have that kind of concentration that um, the, the, the modernists were, were afforded to have, unfortunately. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, yeah, I agree. Dilemma, I like, what do we do? I don't know. <laughs> um, Maybe, yeah, yeah, maybe you need to have like a, the psychedelic space that would allow that kind of stuff needs to be needs to work on some kind of cooperative model um, so yeah. that you could have co-ops in cities that actually allow people to do stuff like this um, to plug in and create, you know, and be able to explore, explore ways that way that operate as uh, galleries, as workshops and classes, um, but also as a community center that are really yeah. integrated into the, the communities um, and provide, you know, maybe hot meals to people or stuff like that, or allow like mutual aid in addition to these like other modes that kind of are expanding the consciousness. Yeah, no, I think that's great. Um, and maybe that, again, that's sort of the response, the regenerative response that we're looking at on the left is like, okay, well, we need something that's common centric and cooperative centric in order to really answer that question. And and so we're talking about something really fundamental. And, and you know, to, to Fisher's point too, about consciousness raising, um, you know, it, it again becomes a matter of like, how do we impart this, this new subjectivity, right? in a communal sense and how do we actually impart that and share it and activate it because your your point a little bit earlier talking about uh you know the this is not just our consciousness changing and then so we like impart the new consciousness on the world it's like this participatory process of the environment and the social environment that we are contained within shaping us and then us shaping it and so part yeah. of this process is really kind of getting getting in the mix of that loop and starting to shape it differently, like full well, like understanding that like, it's not just like, okay, we're just going to break from capitalist realism and start our own reality over here. And, you know, it, it's, it's going to be this feedback loop that's cyclical and nonlinear. And, and, you know, it's, it's a, it's an ongoing kind of media ecological question. So, and again, which was highlights the importance of aesthetics in media. Um, yeah. But and, and we should we should be thinking about like collective joy too. Um, yeah. you know, like how creating projects and this was big in modernism, um, like creating yeah. projects that really benefited not an individual but the community or you know a city at large, um, that allowed them to interact with it, like you know, changing uh public public parks that operate almost as like meeting spaces as like how we normally think of parks that have artistic expression in them um, that 
are meant to really foster community and be mm-hmm. of benefit to anyone that's there, not just for individual projects. Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, so yeah, let, let me jump to another one of Armando's questions. Uh, or actually I have one, one little comment from, uh, from Brent Cooper. Where did it go? Um, let's see here. Well, I can't find it at the moment, but he said the left, uh, the right can't meme. <laughs> I don't know what you think about that. I mean, it's both true and it's not, um, you know, like, it depends how you're thinking about it. The right can yeah. certainly has certainly entered a lot of things in the public consciousness. Um, you know, uh, I mean, the way that they blew up the Pepe um, is a really yeah, simple one that, that like most people mm-hmm. would know. Right. Um, but also the way that they were able to constantly create a new language that hid in plain sight. Um, and, you know, we think of this as a negative thing, but like, you know, the OK sign being a, a being taken over is like a alt-right dog whistle um, to those that knew so that it was easy for them to signal to one another um, while for a while still like easily maintaining this uh, like level of innocence. Right. Saying like, what mm-hmm. are you talking about? That's the OK sign. Like, why, what do you mean? That's a symbolism of white pride like that's ridiculous you know um and there's all sorts of stuff like that that they do and we need to create new languages and new symbolism um and you know the more i think about this i i want to say that might mean abandoning a lot of the left sacred cows abandoning words like communism and socialism abandoning the hammer and the sickle although i mean I also recognize the importance of the historical tradition and like grounding yourself um, both in past analyses and like, you know, a revolution, the new should uh, vindicate past revolutions, like seeing yourself in that line. But if we stick so closely to those old forms, uh, you really don't get to create the new, you know, and that's I mean, that's simple. So. No, uh, that's a good point. Um, and Armando was saying as well, just like his description is like actually kind of talking about what we're talking about doing. A mystical experience can be part of the same constellation as art and acid and undermining conventional cognition and disrupting ideologically ideological beliefs. Um, yeah. And- uh, yeah. I, yeah. I, the way I make art, when I paint, when I draw, um, often when I write is entering a state of altered consciousness. And I don't mean like doing drugs and, you know, them painting or whatever. Uh, The process of doing that, um, entering a a stream of consciousness and the flow, getting in the zone, you know, all those things, it is, it changes the way you think and it does open up different pathways to your thinking and creating. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I do live painting a lot. Uh, Someone else that lives in our city, Billy Mays, the third who makes music under infinite third, we perform together. Well, not in a while, but we were performing together for quite a bit. uh, Three hour sets where he would do improvised music and I would do improvised painting. Um, And, you know, at the end of that, I would need a good 20, 30 minutes to come back to reality, to be able to like fully 
communicate with someone because you get in a different state of mind um, that really is mystical or psychedelic. It feels like channeling or like entering a trance. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's, that's a good place to be in because um, you get outside of yourself and you create something that you didn't even intend, you know, and the construction of the creation is part of the, uh, 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 is part the, yeah, the, the construction is part of the actual creation. Mm. Like the process is embedded within the work and it becomes almost as important as the end goal. And I think that's important. Yeah. And I think, you know, framing those kind of experiences, this, this kind of goes back to like set and setting and the holistic container of this sort of art and these sort of experiences, um, you know, framing this and Fisher talked about this too, in terms of like mental health, right? Like framing this is good for you. Framing this is sort of needed and is part of maybe why, you know, um, psychologically an individual may be suffering or contributed to the suffering of their depression or their mental anxiety, et cetera, that these are kind of remedial practices, right? Like ontologically remedial, like going through these spiritual states or these altered states is helpful in that container. Seeing it as something that is like a meaningful act for your, not only individual well-being, right? But again, as you're saying in the context of like communal well-being, right? So really kind of properly situating it in this, um, you know, Fisher talked, he only kind of alluded to it in, in capitalist realism that like we could sort of pit um, mental health and, and, and well-being against capitalist realism. Like the, the problems that are developing are as a direct response or direct result of, you know, the situation that we're in culturally. So yeah, like get a new sense of time, like get out of your, your ego for a little bit. That's really good for you. Get out of linear <laughs> labor time. It's really good for you. Um, get involved communally with others in this context. That's great that like, you know, you're in a situation where collectively you're engaged with others and time isn't money in this situation and you want to propagate those experiences and see them proliferate. So you're really kind of building and, and co-shaping a kind of shared future, right, together. Yeah, yeah, so I, yeah. yeah I, I find this to be really um, kind of really important and it's, it's immediate, you know, like like maybe this is a good question too, like um, for, for individuals who are really interested in this and are curious to learn more, like, what would you recommend they start with? Like, I know you do a lot of, you work on a lot of art. Should they do something creative? Um, should they go read Mark Fisher and join the book club? I mean, what are ways to kind of begin to do this? Well, I mean, yes, I always recommend people to try something creative um, and not worry so much about the outcome. Um, you know, a lot of the times, uh, I try to get people to like draw with me, you know, I'll start something and I'll hand it to them and I'll be like, Oh, here, you want to draw with me? And people's yeah. initial response, unless they had some kind of training at drawing, um, is like, Oh no, 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 I can't draw. Like, it doesn't matter. Um, you know, like if, if you can't draw a portrait of someone like people, you know, uh, 10,000 years ago, we were scraping stuff on cave walls and creating art um, and images. So it's within us. Um, mm -hmm. And actually putting a line to paper or a mark on a paper or however you're doing it, starting to write, starting to free flow um, stuff is really helpful to each individual. Um, now on the more theoretical side, yeah, 
read a Mark Fisher book or watch some of our videos. I mean, to always be plugging, like uh, we we do this kind of stuff precisely to grant another form of um, understanding to people who have read the books and stuff, but also for people who aren't going to read the books. Like I, you know, I mean, if you really want to like speak about this stuff with like absolute authority, sure. You're going to have to be super well read, but that doesn't mean you can't have an idea of something just by engaging it in other ways. Like, yeah. So I think our reading, um, group series are really good because they incorporate both the text and, you know, other forms, visual forms and stuff to it. Um, and talk about it with people. Um, you know, if you read something, don't keep it in your head. Like you never know what that, what you think about something until you've talked to someone else about it is my feeling. Yeah. Um, and to maintain an openness, like, uh, I also with talks like this or even with the reading group or something that's more directed, uh, I always feel like those conversations themselves are like a group brainstorm session. Um, you know, you open yourself up to others um, and you allow your ideas to both be challenged and then also to put your ideas out there where like the sum of it is greater than the two people or five people speaking, you know? Um, mm -hmm. So really allowing for those types of experiences, that's the best way to like first start off, I think. Yeah, that's great. That's great. And, and as we wrap up, maybe um, tell people a little bit about, what's happening next for you and for the acid left uh is there another book club happening um let people yeah. know how they can get involved and plug in absolutely um so we've recently started the acid left has recently started um doing twitch streams kind of more informal stuff um and is that tomorrow yeah tomorrow tomorrow we are going to be on twitch um around noon uh eastern standard time and we're going to be interviewing the ceo and creator of randonautica um which is like a phone app that takes you to a random place uh and the theory behind it is that the the location is generated through a quantum number random number generator and that you set an intention while it's calculating and that your intention is going to influence the uh, location that you're given. So when you travel there, the interaction between your intention and what you find will create some kind of synchronicity, a meaningful coincidence. Um, mm -hmm. And it's a pretty fun app. I've played around on it a few times. Uh, you could find stories about it all over online. Um, it's really interesting. Uh, so we're going to be talking to him about about his app, about uh, Carl Jung and synchronicity and also the Situationist International and their ideas of the derive, which was like where they wandered through the city and allowed the the city to kind of guide them. Um, and, to, and by that way, you could uh, uncover the unconscious of the city itself, the psychogeographic terrain. Um, so that's on twitch.tv slash the acid left. We have other videos up there. You can find us on YouTube as The Acid Left, uh, Facebook and Instagram, The Acid Left. Um, so yeah, plug into any of those. And our next reading group uh, will be Ghost of My Life. We're doing 
private sessions and public sessions for all of these um, because there's been such an interest. We couldn't possibly be as detailed as we'd like to be with a full public group. Um, so we'll be publishing the first private session. It'll be four of us um, on January 22nd, I believe. Um, and then shortly after that, after we go through a little bit more of it, there'll be public open talk. Um, and then after Ghost of My Life, we'll go on to The Weird and the Eerie. Um, and then we'll figure out what we do after Fisher from there. Um, and, you know, if if we have time, I would love to read a couple short poems, if you don't mind. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That'd be great. Yeah. I, was, I wasn't I, sure if I should ask, but if you had, I didn't want to put you on the spot. But uh, no, no, I, I like reading poetry. Um, awesome. I uh, yeah, because I don't have anything like of my own stuff of. Uh, oh, yeah. And if you want to find my stuff. You can find me on Instagram at, at art period o period dirt, um, or on most platforms as dirt son of earth. Um, that's kind of the name I publish art under. Um, and I'll read a few poems that I wrote. I'll, I'll try to keep these short ones. Um, this one and relevant. Um, this one is called trends come back in style, but cartilage doesn't have its own blood supply. Nostalgic. Window dressing, this feeling of being able to now somehow master old desires by the repeating decimal of fashion behind a curtain, the eternal, ah shit, here we go again, treating the catwalk as if it was the strut, but when I was a child, I couldn't imagine feeling my connective tissues and unused muscles, unable to think of what I wasn't that's that um thank you uh this one is titled um smiling between terror and ecstasy limit experience in the mist horror proportional and exposed therapy or foreplay a thousand little deaths or near deaths or coiled smiles stitching the fabric we now demarcate as edge edge a demarcation of a certain coil stitching on our sensuous surface, a textual difference of smile and landscape, the return trip reflection on how emptying contains its own fulfillment, fulfillment, the reflection of containing the ability to be completely emptied, a geometric ecstasy, liturgical appreciation for the inherent depthlessness of single point perspective, Previously encrusted, the neon signifier, limit, edge, limit, while the reel does a Mobius strip tease to a vapor glitch remix of Jay-Z, got 999 plateaus, but a kitsch ain't one. If you're nostalgic for dominance hierarchies, I feel feel ba bad for you, son. Thank you. Um, oh, that was great. And I'll read this last one. Um, and this is called Beneficial Bacteria. We are in a constant state of unfolding and infolding. My proteins reach an equilibrium, but does the self? What's the relation of my bio, chemistry, and consciousness? Contemplating and meditating on the monad produces a distinctive queasiness. The possibility of being God's shit ain't the easiest. <laughs> awesome, Adam. Thank oh, you. man, that last one really uh, synced up with... Um... 
some notes I had taken this morning about uh, about our call and that like what is the appropriate response to uh, um, uh, capitalist realism and I have been recently reading um, a book uh, called Gaian Systems and it talks a lot about Lynn Margulis and homeostasis and the earth and the microbiome so immediately went into that and you just yeah. like linked up the theory with this cool image uh, which went right into the shit when it was great just like flipping right back into the decomposition thank you, so, thank you. yeah um, so you very know, Speaking point. of the the hollow biome, I think that's a beautiful understanding of things. Um, and obviously, we can't get into that because that could be another two hours if we start yeah. unpacking that kind of stuff. Um, but the hollow biome, um, uh, I, I, I think there's something there, and I want to incorporate ideas um, and the mental capacity and consciousness into this. Um, and I think that's done through the hollow memo. Um, you know, <laughs> like me memes are alive and they're kind of using us as we use them to like consciousness is there. Um, and that's definitely part of it. And we have to recognize that. Oh, totally. Totally. Well, uh, Adam has been awesome. Uh, we have to do this again, uh, and maybe even go into the, the hollow meme <laughs> uh, know, for the next round. Say. Yeah. But it, it makes sense intuitively. Um, but yeah, thank you, Adam. And thanks so much for, for sharing a little bit of the, the poetry towards the end um, and just giving us a little psycho psychoactive analytic zap. Appreciate it. And uh, yeah, let's let's do this again sometime soon. All right. Thank you very much, Jeremy. All right. Take care. Peace. Peace.